And one of the things I, I like about living in London is just how international it is. And uh, it's great, isn't it, to rub shoulders with people from different na nationalities. And what I like doing is trying to work out just how accurate some of the national stereotypes are of, uh, of different nationalities. I, I was at this point going to reel off a number of jokes, uh, making crass generalizations about certain nationalities. Um, but I've heard the Irish are a very violent people, uh, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but suffice to say, it is true, isn't it? Citizens of, of certain countries, they, they do often display common traits, don't they? They often share a common mindset, a common code, a common outlook. Which is why when you're traveling abroad uh, for a long period of time, then suddenly you bump into someone from your hometown, from your nationality, you often find you have a natural affinity to them, don't you? We often find that we have, a, we have the same mind about things. Although many of us are here, we're, we are citizens of other countries. We're, we're living here in the UK, but our citizenship might be from the States or from uh, China or wherever we're from. And maybe a concern for you living here is that you might go native. That is, you might slowly lose your accent. Uh, you, you might suddenly adopt our customs. You might gain a British mindset. Maybe that's a concern for you. Uh, someone recently wrote into a newspaper uh, writing about this sort of thing. He said this. I'm an American who lives in Britain, and I've tried to embrace your culture and people. My shopping carts are now trolleys. My second floor is now the first floor, and I get there via a lift instead of an elevator. I love your queen, I eat your pies, I much prefer your beer, but one thing has baffled me about your country. For some inexplicable reason, you call the pulp in your orange juice, juicy bits. Juicy bits. They're literally the least juicy parts of a glass of juice. And not a single one of your citizens has been able to explain this to me. Well, you'll see from your handout, in verse 27, Paul declares followers of Jesus to be citizens of heaven. We might live here on earth, but our home is in heaven with Christ. Which means we should kind of expect Christians to possess the same mindset, if you like, a common ethic, a common outlook, a common goal. That should be expected. But as you know, it's, it's often not, not the case, is it? Perhaps out of a desire to fit in, many of us kind of feel a gravitational pull to go native whilst here on earth. We're tempted, if you like, to lose our heavenly accent and replace it with one of this world. In our passage today, we're going to see a number of threats to this heavenly mindset, our mindset as citizens of heaven. And at the very end, it really is the most important bit, we're going to see a motivation to cling on to that mind which is ours, the mind of Christ. But you'll see our first point on your handouts. We need the same mind when facing external opposition. Follow with me in verse 27 in your Bibles. Look down with me. Verse 27. Paul writes this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then when I, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. 
We've heard this idea over the past few weeks in Philippians, but if we're citizens of heaven, well, we can't expect to always fit in with citizens of this world. We're not better than them, of course not, but, but we are different. So we will experience something akin to spiritual xenophobia, spiritual racism whilst here. So at work, we won't join in with the gossip, and, and, and that might mean we might end up being the targets of the gossip. Uh, we might act with in honesty and integrity with our clients, and, and that might put, us, put, our, uh, put our bosses' backs up. We might be passed over for promotion. Uh, when we're invited out for a night's out with our, with our team uh, in the office and we don't get drunk, they might just push us out of the social circle. See, as Christians, we have different ethics, different priorities, different mindset. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we're opposed. I don't know what you think about this. It might be this prospect frightens us. In fact, this word here for frightened, there in verse 28, it's the same word used to describe how, how horses on a battlefield get spooked and scared. You might have seen films with, with uh, old films of horses in battlefield. And you know what happens when they get spooked. They scream and they whinny and they're charging, scattering all across the battlefield. That's the picture here. Frightened. Paul knows that when trouble comes, our natural inclination will be to break ranks, to scatter. So here, in verse 27, he exhorts us as citizens of heaven to stand firm in one spirit, to contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, the culture amongst you will know about the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC. The less culture among you, including myself, will have seen the film 300, based on, on the story. And it's a famous battle. Allegedly, one million Persian soldiers faced off against 300 Spartans. And remarkably, the 300 Spartans stood their ground for seven whole days as wave after wave of Persians fell upon them. How did they do that? Well, they stood firm in one spirit. If you like, they, they contended as one man with one mind. If you've seen the film, you saw how they interlocked their, foot, their shields to make a sort of a phalanx and they, they, they forced all the, the Persian soldiers through, through a sort of a, a funnel, if you like. So, so as they stood there for seven whole days, nothing could penetrate their defences. That's what the church should be doing in the face of this external opposition. Not scattered horses breaking ranks, but so, like soldiers contending with one mind and as one man. Now, some of you, you might be wondering, is, Andy, is this really strictly necessary? We might suspect that being opposed for following Christ, it, it, might, um, it, it might happen to people in other places, in other parts of the world. It might happen to Christians in, in, in years gone by. It might happen to the slightly angular characters amongst us. But it's not going to happen to me, is it? Being opposed for the name of Jesus. Well, look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Friends, here's a promise for everyone who follows Jesus. If you follow Christ, you will follow 
Christ. Where did Christ go? He went to the cross. Which means, where do we go? Well, we walk in his footsteps to the cross. Where he goes, we go. If you've ever been bungee jumping, you know often on your first jump, they, they strap you to someone else, don't they? And um, there you are, you're standing at the top of the bridge, you, they've got, you've got the bungee cord wrapped around your legs, and you're strapped to this other person, and they launch themselves off. Now, you might not be ready at this point. You might not have mentally prepared yourself, but if they're going, believe me, you're going with them. Why? Because you're strapped to them. It's inevitable. Your trajectory, sorry, his trajectory becomes your trajectory. And so it is with Christ. If you like, by faith, we're, we're united to him. We're strapped to him if we trust in him, which means his trajectory becomes our trajectory. Which is why in Acts 16, we saw a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago Paul suffered for the name of Christ. It's why now the Philippians are undergoing the same, the same state persecution for the same reasons, for the name of Christ. It's why even now, in Britain, in the 21st century, we should expect to suffer for the name of Christ. Yes, it's going to look very different. We don't go looking for it, of course. But in the name of Christ, if it's on our lips, it will come. Friends, I hope you see that in the face of such inevitable opposition, it is impossible to be a solo Christian, to be a Rambo, thinking you can fight it alone in the jungle. It's utterly alien to biblical Christianity to think we can go it alone. I hope, I hope this is a gentle warning to those of us who think you can just sit on the edges of things, for those who think they don't need Christian fellowship, you don't need encouragement, you don't need accountability. You do. You really do. The reason we have things like small groups and, and one-to-ones and, and prayer dinners this coming Wednesday and, and men's breakfasts is because it's vital that in the face of this external opposition, we stand firm with one mind. It's vital if we're going to last as Christians. Our second point is similar. You'll see it's that we need the same mind when facing not external opposition, but internal division. Sometimes um, reading Paul's letters, a little bit like listening to a conversation on the phone. My wife Hannah, she, she's an identical twin, and, and I swear at least 45 to an hour each day, 45 minutes to an hour, she's on the phone to her twin. I only ever hear one side of the conversation, I only hear Hannah speak, but I can often get a pretty good idea of how uh, uh, my sister in Rebecca's day has been just through listening to Hannah. And so it is uh, with Paul here. Just as we read from verse 1, just, just try and get an idea, guess, what do you think is going on in the church? From verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any uh, comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider one another better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think as we eavesdrop into what Paul writes here to the Philippians, it, it seems as if, maybe you got this idea, it seems as if they're experiencing some sort of disunity among them. In fact, if you, in chapter 4, we'll see it in a few weeks, uh, we meet two women called Euodia and Syndike, and it seems they've fallen out over something. They, they have two minds, and they're pulling in, in two different directions. Maybe that's what's going on here. 
But also it seems as if there are folk in the church who are motivated by selfish ambition. We met uh, in, uh, in last week's passage a few folk who are doing the same thing. Uh, they, they want to be noticed. They, they want to be congratulated. They want to be given glory. And, and maybe, maybe with the pressure from the state being, faced upon the, being forced upon the church, maybe it's heightening their instincts just to look after number one, to, to just break ranks, to scatter. I guess in many respects, the Philippian church is, is not extraordinary. It's just like any other church. It's just like us, really, isn't it? There are so many things which could potentially divide us. Uh, we have different character types amongst us, don't we? And sometimes <laughs> they clash. Uh, we differ sometimes on secondary points of doctrine. Uh, we may disagree over strategy or direction. Uh, sometimes our motivations to serve, uh, they're mixed, aren't they? In fact, I was talking with um, someone uh, this past week about how they've come to see this sort of mixed motives in themselves. They, they volunteer to, to cook uh, very self-sacrificially, and they, for them, time-wise, they put themselves forward. And um, they, they, uh, they cooked a lovely meal, but the, we found the following week, um, someone else was cooking, and everyone went up to that person and praised them for their delicious dish. And they found themselves fuming. They were so angry. And, and, and they said, they, and they examined themselves, and they, they asked, why weren't people praising me? In the same way, it highlighted for them that at least part of their motivation was, was selfish ambition, <laughs> vain conceit. Often our motives, they're mixed, aren't they? Even in our good things. So given all those potential threats to our unity, it's no surprise, therefore, that Paul appeals for us to be like-minded and to get us there, he asks us a really bunch of noddy questions, really obvious questions. They're the sort of questions which your small group leaders would ask you if they've run out of prep time and they're, they're, they've uh, not very imaginative questions. Uh, are you encouraged to be united with Christ? Yes. Right, next question. Are you comforted by his love? Yes. Are you experiencing the compassion of the Spirit? Yes, we might say. Obvious questions. Then Paul follows up. Great. Then make my joy complete by loving your church family in exactly the same way. I think I've used this illustration before, forgive me, but you know what a champagne pyramid is, is don't you? You know when you, have, you stack all these champagne glasses, um, one on top of another, and so you have one at the top, and underneath there's a whole bunch of champagne glasses, and you get one of those big magnum, they're called magnums, aren't they? Magnums of champagne. And you pour uh, the champagne liberally into that top glass until it Tops up, tops up, tops up, and then overflows to the next layer. And they then top up, top up, top up, and then overflow to the next layer, and then so on and so on and so on. So it's a champagne pyramid. Well, the idea here is that the love Christ has shown to us ought to overflow in the way that we love others. If you like, Christ's mind for us ought to determine our mind for his church. Well, what does that look like in practice? Well, just from these verses, there's so many things, aren't there? It will look like being an encourager to your brothers and sisters, rather than a critic. It will look like being a compassionate comforter, rather than a cold acquaintance. It will look like being an active partner in the church, rather than just a passive observer. It will look like being a humble servant, rather than a proud master. 
And you might be thinking, I know, my, my work schedules, they're crazy. And, and family life is so busy. And I know our, our natural instinct, when life is, is pushing in on so many different directions, our natural instinct is just to look after our own interests. That's natural, isn't it? And I know many of us, we're worried about the way our culture seems to be going. It seems to be turning more hostile against Christian faith. And so we're tempted, aren't we, to blend in and lose our accents. And I know sometimes even church is difficult. There are so many things that could potentially divide us. And maybe we're tempted to just keep our distance, to not get involved. There are so many threats. But as Christians, as citizens of heaven, we have this common mindset. We have this common mind. But there's an obvious question, isn't there? You, might, you should have been asking it all the way through. What is this mind? Paul keeps telling us, have the same mind, have the same mind, have the same mind. But what is it? Which is why our third and final point, it really is the engine, if you like, which drives this whole passage, the motivation. We are to think with the mind of Christ. Have a look at verse 5. At the top of your uh, second page of your handout, I've put a very literal translation there for you. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that's a really clunky translation, but but the essence is this. The church of Christ should act with the mind of Christ. So Paul is not saying this. He's not saying, okay, everyone, copy Jesus. Just just copy Jesus. Do what he did. I think often in, in talks like this, we can be made to feel like we're just being whipped into shape, made to feel guilty for our various failings because we can't quite copy Jesus well enough. Paul is not saying here, if you copy Jesus, then you can be a part of his kingdom. He's not saying that. He is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're united with him. Which means you have his mind. You are a kingdom, you're in his kingdom already. You're a citizen of his kingdom already. And so the rest of this passage, is, if you look at it in your Bibles, it's, it's, um, it's almost like a poem. It's like an, a really, really old song. And uh, it serves, really, as the very nerve center of the entire book. Everything refers backwards or forwards to it. And the reason it's so important is because it reveals to us, if you like, the very mind of Christ as he entered our world, as he took on flesh. Two things, I just, two observations I'd like to make for us. Firstly, notice the greatness of humility. Every day in the papers we read about politicians or, or businessmen who use their positions of power to exploit the weak, the Philip Greens and the like. Uh, Our history books, they're they're littered with uh, strong people exploiting weaker people. We see that again and again and again, don't we? We even see it in our arts. Um, Little King Joffrey's prowl our our, our corridors of Waterstones bookstores. We see it in all the books we read. The strong exploit the weak. I'm told there's a, a courtyard in the city of Yotmai in India, and there's this enormous statue in the middle of this courtyard of a very proud, imposing figure, broad shoulders, chin up high, a very strong man. He's obviously someone powerful, someone worthy of respect, because you almost don't notice it the first time you see the statue, but, but crouched down near his feet, is hunched o- is, is like a, is someone hunched over, a menial slave. And at a glance, you might think this statue dates back to one of the darker periods of colonial history, um, a bygone era. But as you go up to the statue and you read the little, the little plaque at the bottom of the plinth, it says this, Jesus washing Peter's feet. Look at verse 6 with me. 
What is the mind of Christ? Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul deliberately chooses language here to contrast Jesus with another man in the Bible. This other man, he, um, in his disobedience, wanted to become like God. And uh, as a result, he then became a servant or, or a slave to sin, which then brought death to himself, but also to the whole of humanity. That's Adam's story. And actually, it's our story too. Which is why the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, entered our world, if you like, as a second Adam. Whereas we, in our disobedience, sought to become like God, the Son of God willingly and obediently sought to become a man. Whereas we are slaves to sin, Jesus, who was without sin, willingly became a slave for us. Whereas we deserve death, Jesus willingly took our death, bearing his Father's anger in our place. You've got to ask yourself, what was Jesus thinking? Why would he do that? When so many people, the natural thing is for the powerful to exploit the weak, why would the most powerful being in all of creation, the very creator of creation, why would he do that for us? What was he thinking? Well, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. He wasn't thinking about himself. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're united with Christ, this is your way of thinking too. We don't consider our positions of power something to be exploited. We don't sit on our privileges and do nothing. Rather, in humility, we consider others as greater than ourselves. We joyfully serve people whom others would say are unworthy of our service. Friends, if you're a citizen of heaven, this is your mind. This is the mind of Christ. So we ought to think this way. Think about the greatness of humility. But finally, notice the inevitability of victory. Look at verse 9. This is how it closes. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Earlier on, I, I compared our union with Christ as being a bit like going bungee jumping with someone, and uh, where uh, their trajectory is inevitably going to be your trajectory. But if you've ever been bungee jumping, you'll know that when you, when you reach the bottom, you don't just stop. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Now you then ping right back up to us again, don't you? That's what happens. You go down and then up. Well, so it is with us and Christ. We will suffer with him. We will be opposed like he was. We will suffer. But it's just as inevitable that just as we went down, we will be raised and we will be exalted with him. We will be vindicated just as he was. And this is great news, friends, because it, no matter how scary 
or fragile your present circumstances might be, we have a certain hope for the future. And in this we can rejoice. We, we can stand firm against external opposition and not be frightened. Uh, we may lose respect. We may lose friends. We may even, in other parts of the world, we may even lose our lives. But we cannot lose our citizenship in heaven. And it means when we're wronged, and friends, we will be wronged. We'll be wronged by people out there. We may even be wronged by people in here. We don't have to be vindictive. Because we know that one day we will be vindicated. Um, I came across this book a number of years ago. I highly recommend it to you. It's called Killing Fields, Living Fields. It, it talks about what went on in the 1970s in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, Rouge regime. Has anyone read this book? It's an extraordinary um, story of, of, of the church and, and what happened there. It's one, of the, it's one of the world genocides. It's one of the worst genocides in, in the modern era, really. It's horrific what went on in Cambodia under that communist regime. Uh, the Christians there, they're, they're all um, forced into, into, into labor camps. And they knew that if they were found meeting together, praying together, talking about the Bible together, they would be executed. And in that sort of situation, if, if we were there, you would think surely it's understandable, wise even, for them to just to look after their own interests, for them to keep their heads down, to stop associating with other Christians. But do you know what they didn't? They kept on meeting together. They joyfully shared their, their pitiful amount of rice with each other, even though they were starving. They watched over one another and willingly took beatings so that the weaker members didn't get the beating. All the while, they contended as one man for the sake of the gospel. It is extraordinary what these Christians did in such a bleak period of history. And when the regime fell and the Vietnamese invaded, you, you might say it's natural, it right even, for the Christians to try and seek um, some sort of uh, vindication for themselves, to try and seek violent justice against those who have been so violent against them, to seek some sort of cruelty in return for the cruelty that was shown to them. But you know what? They didn't. Again, they thought with the mind of Christ. They entrusted justice and vindication to their God, the one before whom they know one day every knee will bow. Nearly the entire church in Cambodia was wiped out. An entire country, every single Christian pretty much, was killed. The whole country was emptied of missionaries. But now, today, it's, one of the it's the ninth fastest growing Christian community in the world. Why? Because they thought with the mind which is theirs in Christ Jesus. In the midst of external opposition... In the midst of circumstances when they could very easily have forgotten the church and just looked after themselves, they didn't lose their heavenly accent. They thought with the mind that was theirs in Christ. And my prayer is for our church, whatever might come away from without or from within, we might keep thinking with the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we're astounded at your Son, the eternal Son of God, who did not consider his position of glory and honor something to be exploited for his own benefit, but willingly gave it up and took on a human nature that we might be saved, that we might be brought back to you. Thank you for his humility. Thank you for your love. 
And we ask, Father, that having grasped something of that, we might then show that same love to others. Would we overflow it to one another here, to our friends and our colleagues and our neighbours? Let us be agents of your love and keep us united as a church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.